Last week, we spoke about the human heart's uh, drive towards unbelief. Now, when I talk about unbelief, I'm not just talking about, um, well, when we were talking about unbelief, we weren't just talking about mere skepticism, intellectual curiosity, or even genuine doubt, which all of those can be a, a good in the pursuit of truth. We, what we're talking about, what we talked about last week is just straight up unbelief. I, I don't want to know, I don't care, I don't have the time, I can't be bothered by it kind of unbelief. And, and the Bible says that that kind of unbelief has driven humanity to suppress truth, to pervert truth, to ignore it, to malign it, to avoid it, to deny truth. But the truth about truth is, is that, that it is truth, and whether or not you accept it or embrace it or like it, it is what it is, and the truest truth that there, there, there is is that God is. As a matter of fact, we even talked about last week, Anthony Flew, a world-renowned philosopher and atheist who, I, I guess you could say, became an atheist about his atheism, right? He, he had to deny the fact that his entire life, his whole career devoted to this ideology that there was no God, he came to the realization in the twilight of his life that he's wrong. Now, he didn't cross over to believe in the Christian God at all, but he did transfer from atheism to a, a deism, Right? So he acknowledged that we cannot go through life thinking that there is no supreme being of some sort. So that's my simple point is that even in the world, philosophers and atheists who give their lives to it come to a point of realizing, no, there is a God. What the Bible tells us, the Bible reveals to us who that God is. Furthermore, that the Bible says, Genesis 1 and 2, that we as his creation were created to fellowship with him, to worship him, to glorify him, to fulfill his purposes. And in doing that, you and I experience our most satisfaction, fulfillment, glory, purpose, and meaning. That is how things were supposed to be. As we learned last week, though, in our rejection of truth, it can only inevitably lead to the embracing of error. As humanity has denied God, the existence of God, it's not that we've become atheists. In fact, the opposite has happened. We've become pantheists. Now, I don't mean that in the technical, traditional sense that in that all matter is God, all right? In fact, you can uh, get rid of all religious terminology from your vocabulary, and you can disavow the sacred in every aspect of your life and still be a pantheist. What I mean by that, to you, all the world and everything in it is subject to your religion, your religious impulses. You're familiar with Sigmund Freud. Everyone kind of knows that name. Well, a lesser-known name, Otto Rank, was one of Freud's most prominent students. Otto Rank said, human beings are religious beings. He didn't mean by that that they go to church. That's not what he meant. What he meant was that human beings in their fundamental core have a religious impulse of devotion, of liturgy, and practices that drive their lives. And he was right. A little while ago, I was reading an article in the Atlantic uh, magazine, and there's this, an article got my attention, and it was this, workism is making Americans miserable. Very insightful article by a young man, Derek Thompson, I believe was the, the staff writer's name. This is what he wrote. For the college-educated elite, work has morphed into a religious identity 
promising transcendence and community, community, but failing to deliver. So obviously, if you know the Atlantic, they're pretty large articles. And what the article was talking about was in the early 20th century, a lot of economists were, were speculating that the advancement of technology would no longer require us to have the 40-hour work week, that things like fax machines and email and all these things, by the 21st century, we would all have the 15-hour work week. Yeah, well, we all know how that turned out. But so, so what the article was talking about is how things have changed. And so that's the backdrop of the article. So what he goes on to say is that, that instead of work, it would be leisures and hobbies that would occupy us. So Thompson, the writer of this article, goes on to say this. The economists of the early 20th century did not foresee that work might evolve from a means of material production to a means of identity production. They failed to anticipate that for the poor and the middle class, work would remain a necessity, but for the college-educated elite, it would morph into a kind of religion, promising identity, transcendence, and community. Call it workism. That was the introduction to the article. The first subheading was entitled, The Gospel of Work, and this is what he says. The decline of traditional faith in America has coincided with an explosion of new atheisms. Some people worship beauty, some worship political identities, others worship their children, but everybody worships something, and workism is among the most potent of the new religions competing for congregants. Otto Rank was right. The Atlantic Magazine says the same thing, but it's not just psychologists and, and, and journalists who think this way. David Foster Wallace, named by Time Magazine as one of the, most, the top 100 most influential American novelists this century said in his famous commencement speech to Kenyon College, in the day-to-day -day trenches of life, of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah or Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. That's kind of the message of the very last section of Romans chapter 1 here. You see, what the Atlantic is saying, what David Foster Wallace is saying, what Otto Rank is saying, is that what the Bible's always been saying is that humanity fundamentally was made to be a worshiping being. We call it the imago Dei, the image of God in us. We were designed to reflect His glory and His purposes. That's why we worship. We were built for it. This is what we do, and we do do it, religious, irreligious. Young, old, poor, wealthy, educated, uneducated, conservative, progressive, Republican, Democrat, we all worship. It's what we do. Now, last week in our study of Romans, we re realize or recognize and learn that God's wrath is, in fact, being revealed against humanity or upon humanity because we have refused to worship Him and instead have chosen to worship the creation around us instead. The Bible calls this idolatry, and it is the problem that underlies all other of our problems. Now, it might be surprising to you, if you're not familiar with Romans, that God's wrath here doesn't consist of fire and brimstone, right? It's actually much worse. God's wrath here is simply revealed to us in that 
God leaves us to our idols. And as Foster Wallace rightly says, they are eating us alive. So in Romans chapter 1, verses 24 to 32, Paul will address the problem of idolatry, the nature of idolatry, the results of idolatry, and then we'll see the solution to idolatry. So let's look at them one at a time, starting at verse 24. You see that phrase, God gave them up. It actually happens three times in our text. This is the first of the three times, and each text, each time it appears, is a unit of our study together. So verse 24, so verse 26, and verse 28. Now, this thing that, that, that God gives them up, in this case, in verse 24, 25, to impurity is a serious thing. In the Old Testament, when this same phrase, God gave them up, or you might have it translated, God handed them over, it was used of the Lord giving over a people to another people in battle. And it was uh, to signify uh, being a conquest or subjugation. God does not give humanity over lightly. Notice, He gives humanity over to impurity because impurity is what humanity wanted. Notice right there in the text, the first verse, God gave them up, notice the prepositional phrase, in the lusts of their hearts. So that, that describes the condition that we were up. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. In other words, God is giving us over to what we've put ourselves under. And Paul is making the same kind of point in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And so God gives humanity over because they were already putting themselves under impurity and sensuality. Friends, as we look through the Scriptures, and we'll look at a passage in Numbers 11 shortly, God's judgment often is in the form that He merely gives people over to the very thing they want to rule over them. Let's go to Numbers chapter 11. Keep your finger in Romans uh, chapter 1. Go back to Numbers chapter 11. It's the fourth book in the Old Testament. So just go all the way to the left in the Bible and move four books to the right. And so this is the period where the children of Israel are wandering out in the desert, and they are uh, missing Egypt, you could say, and they start to complain. And so I'm going to pick it up in verse 4, and, and keep in mind, the people of Israel had just been delivered from nearly four centuries of brutal slavery in Egypt. So here they are, and, and by the way, this is a mirror, right? As you look at the Old Testament, I hope you see it as a mirror reflecting back the human heart. Numbers 11, verse 4. I'm going to read a couple verses and then skip down to verse 31. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt. Oh, my parentheses, while you were in slavery, but that doesn't come up, does it? While we were in Egypt, that costs nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic, verse 6, but now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. And as you know the, the narrative, God is providing food for them in the desert by this thing called manna. It's this amazing bread that comes down from heaven. And at this point, they're sick and tired of manna. Manna stew, manna shake, manna porridge, manna steak. All they got is manna, and they had it. 
And now they're longing for the meat and the good life as slaves in Egypt. So they're complaining. Skip down to verse 31. And, and by the way, just so you know, that it, what's happening in between is Moses is like, why did you give me these people? What did I do against you that I have to lead them? And so he asked God to intervene. And it's an amazing narrative, but I want to just cut to the chase. Verse 31, then a wind from the Lord sprang up and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp. About a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp and about two cubits above the ground. In other words, there was so much quail that crash landed near them, it was about a day's journey just to walk around and see all the quail laying on the ground. And the people rose all that day and night and the next and gathered the quail. Verse 33, while the meat was yet between their teeth before it was consumed. In other words, they are so hungry, they're not even bothering with the kind of kosher laws of preparing their food. They're just eating this quail as quickly as they can. The anger of the Lord was kindled against them and the people, and the Lord struck them down with a great plague. Go back to Romans 1. There's an ironic way of communicating a fundamental truth here in Numbers 11. God knows better. If all he's giving you is manna, then enjoy the manna. Trust him. But in God's typical style, he will give you over to the thing that you, notice it said a strong craving. Uh, Same kind of idea, a strong lust. God will give us over to the very thing we desire. Friends, idolatry is the root problem of humanity, and the root of idolatry is itself is our desire to control our lives. I'm sick and tired of manna. I want meat. I want meat. I want it for my life. That's the root of idolatry. I want to control my life. I want to be the captain of this vessel, and this is what I want. And if they're the God that will give it to me, you're the God I'll give myself to. That's how idolatry works. Our idols are created from our desire to control the world around us. We don't want to trust God. We want to be God. By the way, isn't that the chord that the devil struck in Genesis 3? Hey, psst, eat of this fruit and you will be like God. But here's the problem. Because we were created to be image bearers, we were created to worship, not to worship, to be worshipped. We create these idols only to give ourselves to them. We create them because we think they'll help us control our world, but we only create them to bow down to them. Verse 25, back in our text, shows this exchange. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator. In essence, the logic of idolatry works like this, the way God interacts with us and our idolatries. Do you want these things more than me? Is that really what you want? Do you want these things more than me? Then have them and see where that gets you. Cynthia Heimel was a a lifestyle uh, writer, journalist. She wrote for many magazines and newspapers like The Village Voice in New York, LA Times here. She wrote this article that was so relevant to what we're talking about. The names are a little bit old school, but I think you guys will recognize them. She says this, I pity celebrities. No, I really do. Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Willis, and Barbara Streisand were once perfectly pleasant human beings. 
but now their wrath is awful. You see, Sly, Bruce, and Barbara wanted fame. They worked, they pushed, and the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, had happened, and they were still them. The disillusionment, disillusionment turned, turned them howling and insufferable. And then here's the line that just punches you in the gut. She writes this, I think when, when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish and then laughs merrily when you realize you are emptier than ever. Friends, the, 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 you see, the lure about idolatry is that it, it tells us we, we are going to gain control. The lure of idolatry is that we, we, we will gain power through our own power and performance. But what the Bible teaches, the biblical God has to be approached not with power or your performance, but through repentance, which is the definition of losing power. And we see that idolatry itself is antithetical to how we even approach God. But the nature of idolatry, so the, the problem of idolatry is just antithetical to the way we even relate to God. The nature of idolatry itself is completely unnatural to the way God made the entire system. And that's what verse 26 and 27 highlight for us. So let's look at that next. Now, verse 26 and 27 here is so helpful in helping us understand idolatry. Now, before we, we jump in, I just want to make a quick note on this. Now, obviously, there are those in the, the LGBTQ plus community or those that are sympathetic with them, um, and we have occasionally them visiting with us on Sunday mornings. Very glad to have them here, right? Obviously, they will be upset by what I'm going to say right now because what the Bible says is that homosexuality is wrong. You see that clearly in verse 26 and 27. There's no other correct way to interpret this text. Now, the reason I say correct is that there, there are many new interpretations coming out now that try to say that this homosexuality is okay. You cannot get that from the text, okay? So you're going to be a little bit upset with me if that's the community you sympathize with or are from. Now, for those of you who would agree that homosexuality is wrong, you'll probably get upset with me a little bit because I'm not going to say it's as wrong as you want me to say it, okay? So I guess I'm saying cut me some slack because all of you might get mad at me to how I handle this. But for those of you who, who have ears to hear of what Paul is actually trying to get at, I think you will really appreciate how we unpack this. And the reason I have to say that is I think for the last 40 years, we have read, particularly verse 26 and 27, through the filter of the homosexual debate as if that is exactly and entirely and directly what Paul is talking about here. It isn't. And you'll see that in a moment. For those of you who think that homosexuality is the sin above all sins, and, and, and this is the passage that is proof, it's not. For those of you who don't think homosexuality is a sin, you need to realize it is, because we see it right here. So, let me un with that being said, let's unpack and find out what is verse 26 and 27 saying to us as Paul is talking about the root problem of idolatry. 
I think part of the key of recognizing this is the very first phrase in verse 26. Notice what Paul says, for this reason. Okay, what reason? This is where grammar is so important, that we actually be careful students of the Bible, read what the text says, not what we want it to say. What is the antecedent of the pronoun this? For this reason, and then Paul talks about homosexual sin. What's the antecedent to this, the pronoun? It is the entirety of verse 25, which is about humanity's root problem of idolatry. Okay, so, so for this reason, for idolatry, because of man's idolatrous nature, then he moves on to talk about homosexuality. Why does Paul then mention homosexuality here? Because he's not saying idolatry is humanity's root sin and homosexuality, man, that's just right up there with it. That is not what he's saying. And the reason we know that is throughout the New Testament, the New Testament writers talk about the problem of humanity, and they, they use different phraseology. Idolatry is the term of the Old Testament. It actually disappears in the New Testament and is replaced by phrases like lusts of the flesh or pride. And in other sections of the New Testament that talk about the root problem of humanity, whether it's idolatry, lust of the flesh, or pride, this is the only time Paul brings in homosexuality. So we have to ask, why is he bringing it here when other times in the New Testament, they, when they talk about the core problem, they don't mention uh, homosexuality? Here is, I, I think, an, an honest interpretation of it and what's going on. Here's why God condemns homosexuality. Be and it's this, because the sin of same-sex relations is completely unnatural to human behavior, and we see that at the very end of verse 26, right? This is another key. Paul is saying, Paul is saying this is contrary to nature, and I think this is Paul's key point. Paul is presenting homosexuality as a vivid metaphor for idolatry. In other words, homosexuality is the physical, sexual reality of the absolute unnaturalness of the spiritual adultery involved when we commit idolatry. It is as unnatural as an, of an image bearer to worship and give their hearts to any other idol as it is for a man to desire another man or a woman to desire another woman. Homosexuality is a vivid metaphor for the unnaturalness of our heart's idolatry. You see, homosexuality is not revolting or revulsive to us because heterosexuals find it so. It's revolting because it is a picture of the unnaturalness of humanity's rebellion against God. The problem so often is, in, in, in more kind of conservative Christian circles like us, is that we're so deadened to our own idolatries, we can tend to think that homosexuality is the problem rather than the vivid metaphor for our problem. Let me use this as an illustration. It's kind of like to, to say the only thing Paul's talking about here is homosexuality is a little like receiving a, what is it when you get a, a doctor gives you the, an MRI or imaging scan? I forget what you call it. But, but it, it's the same way of saying, oh, 
That's the problem. The solution is if I can get a marker and erase the color markings, I've solved the problem. No. The image is showing you what the problem could be. It is not the problem itself. Let me illustrate another way. This past week, I was watching this show called Star Trek Discovery. I'm a nerd. Paramount Plus had a deal, so I spent $2 to get a month subscription. And I'm watching this show. I'm watching this new Star Trek show that I'm totally excited about. I didn't know that one of the doctor in the show was gay, and, and so there's this gay couple, and I'm watching on my laptop, and they start kissing. And i be honest with you, as a heterosexual male, this is not something I, I am drawn by or anything, so I do this. Oh, man, go forward 10 seconds, 10 seconds, 10 seconds. Are they done? And as I'm doing that, and I'm thinking about Romans 1, what Paul's talking about, and, and I think the Spirit of the Lord was ministering to me. He says, you are so revolted by watching actors who may or may not actually be gay. It doesn't matter. It just grosses me out to watch that. You're so revolted by that, but are you as revolted by the idolatrous apathy that's in your heart towards me? Are you as revolted of, against that? Are you, are you revolted when the idol of gossip flourishes in your church? Are you as repulsed when you see people bowing to the idolatry of their preferences and their feelings as you are when you see that action? Friends, this is hypocritical to be angered by homosexuality, but not angered by the idols of comfort, of pleasure, of leisure that rule over our lives. Do you see the ugliness of your own idolatry, or do you only see the ugliness of the metaphor? You should see both. But so often we miss the point. Now, as bad as this is, and it, because of the consequences of it, Paul is using same-sex relations as a metaphor for the just unnaturalness of idolatry in the human heart. Do you get what I'm saying here? you understand what I'm saying here? I hope so. Or I may be out of a job. Um, let's talk next, the very nature of this unnaturalness that leads to the chaos, the results of idolatry, and we see that in verse 28 to 32. So, Paul's argument thus far, friends, is that the fundamental sin of idolatry is the human problem. The nature of this problem is that idolatry is simply unnatural to humanity and is therefore wrong and sinful, and it's most vividly seen in the metaphor of homosexuality. And that unnaturalness, talking about idolatry, although it would include homosexuality, causes all manner of distortion in our lives. And that's what this list from 29 to 31 is. Look at it. They were filled with all unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, boastful, inventors of evil, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Wow. Now, here's the challenge. It is easy to read this and think, man, aren't we glad we're not that way or that bad? I mean, I might be selfish, and who isn't selfish, but I wouldn't say I'm ruthless. And friends, sometimes it's hard to see exactly how bad off our hearts are because on the surface, we're pretty well put together, aren't we? I mean, when pastors ask me, well, what kind of church, what kind of church do you have, Rick? 
I don't say, well, it's full of insolent murderers who are foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. I don't describe you guys that way at all. I say, it's just a great church. It's a loving family. I love them. But this is what the Bible says. And unless, friends, we see that this is true of us, I mean really true of us, scriptures like these will just plink off of our self-deceptive, self-protective, self-righteous armor. And, and we won't see that we have a need for a Savior, right? And so what I want to do is I, I want to read something that frames what Paul is saying here in verses 29 to 31 with what, how Jesus talks about this dynamic in the Gospels as a way to kind of help you see uh, the difference between the two and how, we, how this applies to us. Now, I'd like to say I wrote this. Uh, I looked, found it in my computer, and I'd like to think I wrote it, but there was a page number associated with it, so I don't know. So if this sounds familiar and you guys know where I got this, let me know after service. But it's so good. Listen to what it says. And if nobody tells me, I'm going to next time say this is something I wrote. But this is what it says. <laughs> the greatest enemy of our hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but the endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the X-rated video, but the prime time dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love in Luke 14, it's a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the deadliest appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. In fact, it seems justifiable. Jesus said in the parable of the sower, some people hear the word of God and a desire for God is awakened in their hearts. But then as they go on their way, choked with worries and riches and the pleasures of life. In Mark 4, Jesus says, the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. The pleasures of this life, the desires for other things are not evil in themselves. These are not vices. These are gifts of God. They're your basic meat and potatoes and coffee and gardening and reading and decorating and traveling and vacationing and investing and TV watching and internet surfing and shopping and talking. And all of them, every one, can become deadly substitutes, idols for God that ruin us all the while entertaining, distracting, and amusing us. Friends, until we see ourselves in verse 29 to 31, until we see ourselves there, we'll never see our need for a Savior. And that's why I think Paul is so brutal here. And that, by the way, is the solution to our idolatry. That's our last point this morning. This past week, as I was doing my, my weekly Bible reading, I was reading through the book of Psalms, 2 Kings, Isaiah, and John, and I came across this exact passage in Psalm 106. It was astounding. Here it is on the screens. Here's Romans 1.25 on the left, Psalm 106.19.21 on the right. 
Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, Psalm 106, they made a calf in Horeb and worshiped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. There's no doubt in my mind that this event, uh, they're both referencing uh, Exodus 32, was where, where Israel came out by the Mount Sinai and they made a golden calf because Moses was not around for a while and they bowed down and began to worship the calf. There's no doubt in my mind that this was in Paul's mind because this is the prototypical event of idolatry in the nation of Israel. But the psalmist, he gives a commentary on this event. Why did this happen? They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Friends, the solution to false worship, to idolatry, is true worship. An ingredient to true worship is to remember His deliverance. A primary way to remember His deliverance is what you are doing right now. The corporate gathering of the saints how Greg beautifully sets you up to think about our desperate situation and how we've been changed from that and led us into songs preparing us to think about those themes, to remember weekly at the gathering of the church, remembering what he's done, not in delivering us from Egypt in the exodus, but the greater exodus in delivering us from sin by the cross. Friends, remembering God's holiness and purity Remembering God's grace and mercy toward you. Remembering God goes a long way into rejecting your idols because we realize how much grander and greater He is than the substitutes that we seek all the time. Friends, just at a practical level here, just at a practical level, whatever idol that you might have, whatever it might be, whether it's being the perfect mom, the the superstar student, or the ideal husband, whatever you're seeking your identity from, your value from, your sense of worth from, whatever you're seeking your sense of self, maybe your identity is youth, you're healthy and strong, maybe your identity is you're the best Bible teacher amongst your friends, whatever that idol is, It could be a number of things. But what the Bible is telling us over and over again is those idols will never, ever satisfy you. Because you can never know that if if you know enough, if you're good enough, if you are enough. And so you're always wondering, was I I a good enough parent? Am I smart enough in this way? You can never be satisfied because you never know if you are enough. And even if you felt like you were enough, that would fill you with pride. And you wouldn't be a gracious person. And yet at the same time, even if you were proud enough, good enough, smart enough to become that thing, you'll be gripped with pride and you'll also be gripped with fear because you were gonna be afraid, you're afraid of that you won't ever always be good enough, smart enough, strong enough. So in your life, it's pride and fear that grips you. Not grace, not love, not compassion. Those idols can never satisfy. There's always someone better, more creative, cooler, nicer. I mean, just, just look on Pinterest or Instagram to see how poorly you stack up, right? I mean, I go on there, and I'm like, I'm horrible. I'm not going to ever preach again because it's all these great sermons, all these great preachers, all these great people. And here's the other thing. Those idols... They will not forgive you when you fail against them. They can never satisfy you, and they will never forgive you because you always should have done something more. You always should have been better. You should have known this. You should have, should have, should have. 
But here's the beauty, friends. See, no God but the true God will ever satisfy you when you get him or forgive you when you fail against him. Only Jesus Christ can satisfy you when you get him and freely forgive you when you fail him. All your other idols will eat you alive. I want to close by, this is, a, this is a, no doubt a kind of a dark journey, so I want to close by reading what I call the, the anti-Romans 1, 24 to 32. What I mean by that, this is going to be an alternative reading. What, what would have Paul written? What would the Holy Spirit have written if we didn't give our lives to idols? What would we have said here, and I'll close with this. Therefore, God gave them over in their hearts to self-control and purity, that their bodies might be honored among them. For they kept and cherished the truth of God and worshiped and served the Creator who is blessed forever rather than the creature. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to pure and wholesome lives, lived with carefree ease, even the most intimate relations, so that all received in their own persons the due reward of their fidelity And just as they saw fit to acknowledge God in all things, God gave them over to a sound mind to do those things which are proper, being filled with all righteousness, goodness, generosity, kindness, full of selflessness, life, healing, openness, kindness. They are gentle in speech, always building others up, lovers of God, respectful, humble, self-effacing, inventors of good, obedient to parents. They are understanding. They are trusting. They are loving. They are caring. And as they know the ordinances of God, that those who practice such things are possessors of life, they do the same and give hearty approval to those who do likewise. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you and we want to repent of our idolatries, that we're trying to always control our lives because we don't think you are worthy or good enough to control it. Lord, would you be so kind as to give us the eyes to see in the ways in our hearts we bow the knee to other false gods, all the while coming to church, going through the external routine in our hearts, we're bowing down to false gods who we think satisfy, who we think we need, but they will betray us. Father, help us to be the kind of people who have hearts and eyes and minds only for you. Even in this prayer, we recognize apart from your enabling grace, we can't do it. So from beginning to end, we ask for grace, we ask for mercy that we might not be a well-put-together, righteous congregation, but a grace-filled congregation that knows we are great sinners but have a greater Savior. And we pray this in His name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.cccLH.com dot org.